I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the Middle East. Has there ever been a more dangerous time to be alive? Aside from the climate emergency, we face what UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has dubbed a worrisome new arms race. Amidst the failing US war on Russia through Ukraine, the Biden administration set course for spending over $1.5 trillion of US public money on nuclear weapons over 30 years to fight Russia to fight China. Let's go straight to Professor Brian Toon, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder. His pioneering research on nuclear winters has revealed what's in store if Biden pushes the button. He's in Boulder, Colorado. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Toon, for uh, coming on. So in 2023, we've seen reports of secret catastrophic accidents on UK nuclear submarines. Biden sending nuclear-capable weaponry into the Eastern Mediterranean to enforce the alleged Gaza genocide, the end of nuclear uh, agreements uh, being compounded by uh, testing new weapons, a coup in de facto, a de facto coup in Pakistan. We actually interviewed Imran Khan before he was uh, jailed. And uh, we've had an Israeli minister admit to nuclear weapon uh, use, or, or at least possession, by Israel. Just remind us, um, in, the, in the context of all of that, uh, your work, uh, remind us about your work on nuclear threats. Yes, yeah, so we've been concerned for a long time about the devastating impact of having a nuclear conflict, not just between the superpowers like Russia and the United States and Britain and France and China, but also between uh, newer nuclear states like uh, India and Pakistan. Uh, and at the moment, there are about 9,000 nuclear weapons on the planet um, that are either deployed or in some sort of storage. There's also several thousand more that are being dismantled. But those 9,000 weapons um, have about a thousand times more energy in them than all the bombs dropped in the Second World War. So there's a devastating amount of energy there that can be released. And of course, when a nuclear weapon goes off, it's like bringing a little piece of the sun to the ground, because that's how the sun generates its light is by nuclear um, processes, nuclear fusion. So the first thing that happens, of course, is a bright flash of light from the bomb going off, which can burn people at considerable distances and start fires. Then there's a shock wave that comes from the explosion uh, and, of course, a burst of uh, radiation and uh, radioactivity materials are, can be distributed over great distances. So all those things can kill people locally. So we estimate that in a war between India and Pakistan, that 50 to 150 million people would be killed outright by the explosions. And there's a range there because we don't know the yields of the weapons in India and Pakistan. Um, India tested a weapon nearly 15 kilotons in 1998, um, but most of their weapons are probably at that time smaller, but we don't know currently what their weapon yields are. We do know about the United States and Russia and Britain and France what their weapon yields are because they um, have treaties, at least between Russia and the United States. Uh, Russia and the United States have 90 something percent of the nuclear weapons on the planet. Uh, and there are only about 200 cities in Russia with more than 100,000 people. 
There's only about 300 cities in the United States with more than 100,000 people. And between them, they have 9,000 weapons. <laughs> so you can attack every city in those two countries uh, with eight or more nuclear weapons uh, and only need one nuclear weapon to destroy a city. Uh, the average yield of a nuclear weapon in the Russian and U.S. arsenal is about 250 kilotons. The yield of the Hiroshima bomb dropped in Japan, which destroyed a large segment of Hiroshima, is 15 kilotons. So the current nuclear weapons are much more than 10 times as powerful as the Hiroshima bomb. Well, can I just interrupt so, there and ask you then, uh, and I, I want to get on to, perhaps you have some estimates about Israel. We don't have any uh, information really about what they have. But in the context of what you just said, we saw in the US press while the Ukraine conflict was going on, analysts quite uh, coolly saying tactical nuclear weapon use in Western Europe is, uh, is something that we should assess and things could move on from the use of them and talking about it in quite a matter of fact way, it seemed. What did you think of that? Were you taken aback? I think that uh, a lot of people in Europe think that in a war between the United States and Russia, the United States and Russia would be the only people, only countries that are damaged. But that's almost certainly not true. So Russia is thought to have about 2,000 tactical nuclear weapons. Um, and of those weapons, uh, many would be used against um, targets like ships or um, as mines for submarines and things like that. But a lot of them would probably be used against military targets in Europe. Uh, and I found about 650 or so targets that I think the Russians would attack. Uh, some of them are obvious, like uh, military bases, Navy bases, Air Force bases, things like that. Um, but they would also attack um, nuclear storage facilities. There are several nuclear, there are several countries in Europe that store U.S. nuclear weapons. And of course, Britain and France have substantial arsenals of their own. Um, and there are also targets of the same type you're seeing attacked in Ukraine, uh, things like power plants and oil refineries, uh, large why, commercial Why energy. is it that tactical nuclear weapons are now spoken about as battlefield uh, munitions like a tank or something in the context of the work you've done showing us the devastating, uh, well, uh, environmental impact, uh, long-lasting environmental impact of nuclear weapons? Yes, well, I mentioned that there might be hundreds of millions of casualties in the U.S. and Russia from a full-out war between those countries and in Europe. Um, so those casualties are pretty big. Uh, but when you use a nuclear weapon, it burns the city that uh, is being attacked, or whatever the target is, and that those fires produce a huge amount of smoke, which will go into the upper atmosphere and block sunlight. And in our calculations, we find that a full-scale war between the United States and Russia would block so much sunlight that very little would get to the ground. It'd be just like night. The sun goes away, it gets cold. It'd be just like winter. The sun is diminished, it gets cold, ice sheets form. So we find that a nuclear winter would occur um, in which there would be daily minimum temperatures below freezing every day at mid-latitudes for several years. And we predicted that in that case, in the, that the deaths in China, Russia, United States, Canada, most of Europe 
would be about more than 95% of the population at the end of the second year. And the conditions haven't even gotten to their worst at the end of the second year to go on for several more years beyond that. In the Middle East, we think that 75% uh, or more of the people might die in um, places like Iraq and the UAE and other such countries. Um, there would be some countries in the world that wouldn't be so badly affected like Argentina and Australia and New Zealand. Um, so those are widespread um, deaths. Tactical nuclear weapons are often confused by people. Um, some of them are made to be um, used in battlefield conditions, like attacking um, uh, an army um, or attacking uh, tank brigades or something like that. Some of them are artillery shells. Um, there are there have been artillery shells tested that had yields the same as a Hiroshima nuclear weapon. You could blow up an entire city with one of them with one artillery shell. Uh, we don't know what the yields of the Russian tactical nuclear weapons are. The United States and Europe and NATO have uh, only a few hundred tactical nuclear weapons uh, made to be launched and dropped by aircraft. Um, but Russia is thought to have, like I said, 2,000 of them. Uh, and so they'd probably be used uh, in a widespread way across Europe. Why do you think, why do you think Joe Biden sent uh, nuclear weapons to the Eastern Mediterranean over the Gaza, uh, the alleged Gaza genocide? I mean, he sent masses of nuclear-capable uh, equipment, aircraft carriers, warplanes, and submarines. I believe the United States has no nuclear weapons on any aircraft carriers uh, at this time, and most of its aircraft are not nuclear-capable or certainly don't have nuclear weapons associated with them. Uh, it used to be that nuclear aircraft carriers, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, did have nuclear weapons. Uh, but then countries uh, that were allies, such as Japan and South Korea and Australia, objected to having um, nuclear arms brought into their countries when these ships would visit. And so they were removed from all the ships. As far as I know, there are no Navy, air, Navy ships except for um, submarines carrying ICBMs that carry nuclear weapons. Before so before the AUKUS deal anyway, but he also sent the submarine and bizarrely the Pentagon announced it, which is usually a, you know, people keep submarine movement secret in this world. Why would he, why do you think he did that? I don't think the submarines are, have nuclear weapons on them either. They They're have nuclear powered submarines. But I mean, so little is known, as you said, about the yield of some tactical weapons, about the movements of those. Do we know anything about Israel's nuclear weapons program after we now have an Israeli minister who said uh, they should nuke Gaza, admitting in effect what's been widely known by the international community for years? Yes, well, Israel has uh, been very quiet about its nuclear weapons program. There's been one person who was involved in it decades ago that provided some information about it. It's thought that they have somewhere between 80 or 90 nuclear weapons, up to a few hundred nuclear weapons. Um, no one knows anything about their yields. It's possible that um, Israel tested a nuclear weapon during the Carter administration along with South Africa. Um, somewhere out in the Indian Ocean. And it's controversial as to whether that was a nuclear weapons explosion or an asteroid impact. Um, and um, so the Carter administration denied that it was a 
nuclear test at the time, but a lot of people think it was. Um, so we don't know anything about much about the Israeli weapons. It would be very bad to have nuclear proliferation in the Middle East. It's obvious that there have been problems between various factions in the Middle East for millennia. Uh, you know, there are different religious groups there. There. Well, I think, but as you're saying, there shouldn't be proliferation anywhere anyway. But uh, And that was apartheid South Africa you were referring to. Why is it the IAEA is so carefully monitoring what Iran has always said is a civilian air, nuclear program, and they've said it was un-Islamic to have a nuclear weapons program? Well, what is the role of the IAEA in uh, trying to prevent proliferation of nuclear weapons, given I don't see anything about the IAEA going to Tel Aviv anytime soon? Uh, yeah, I don't understand the interaction between them and Israel. Um, in general, um, they try to uh, monitor countries that have agreed to um, international agreements about uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons and um, to monitor them to see if they are actually um, doing what they said they would do. But there are a number of countries that have never agreed to um, to uh, the uh, nuclear non-proliferation treaties. Um, I don't want to get into naming them because they may misname somebody, but there are several countries who haven't agreed to that. And um, so they're not subject to inspections by the, um, by the United Nations. Um, you know, I, in my view, we're in a really bad situation worldwide here because uh, China is rapidly building up its arsenals. India and Pakistan are building up their arsenals. North Korea is building up its arsenals. The United States is uh, redoing its arsenals. You know, and Russia is developing a bunch of new weapons that are some of which are incredibly scary, like um, drone submarines that can be parked outside of harbors and blow up huge cities. Um, so this is a very bad trend in the world, and it's uh, you know we're just lucky that we're not having accidents occur that lead to a nuclear conflict. Well, let's get on to the accidents in part two, Professor Ryan Toon. I don't know whether the echoey uh, sound there coming from Colorado is because you're in a bunker, but we'll get on to the mistakes of part two. Thank you so much uh, for now. More from the Professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the Professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder, Professor Brian Toon. So uh, we were talking about uh, the chances for mistakes of uh, Armageddon, trigger triggering Armageddon. You know, we had Imran Khan on this show just before he was jailed in uh, what uh, him and his supporters call a coup. He was very careful when I mentioned the security of nuclear weapons to say, no, no, they're kept very securely. What do you see? I mean, people know, anyone who has a laptop knows they make mistakes on their computer. What are we talking about in terms of the probabilities of mistakes amidst hair-trigger operation of these nuclear devices? Well, there are several different types of mistakes that could be made. Between the United States and Russia, the main fear is that somebody will detect a launch, which isn't actually occurring, and then the other side will respond to that. For example, in the United States, the American president has authority to launch the nuclear weapons by himself. And he, if he says launch them, they be, they'll be launched. Um, and so... This is Joe Biden. Thought, 
with 30 yeah, minutes, with a 30-minute gap. Yes, there's a, a small gap there. And so there's always a, there have been numerous in, mistaken detections of launches in the past. And unfortunately, the world is developing weapons that even take less time to arrive. For example, hypersonic missiles uh, shorten the warning times. Uh, and um, the Russians are developing nuclear-powered cruise missiles that would just fly around the atmosphere all the time. It could be directed at the United States at any moment, which would give you basically no warning. Um, and so that uh, makes things more dangerous and also makes you worry that the military will turn to artificial intelligence computers to decide if there's been an attack or if they should launch the missiles. That would be terrible. My computer doesn't work. And, you know, it's a millions and millions of people are running these things all the time and they sell them work. So I certainly wouldn't want to depend on an uh, artificial intelligence that we're going to have a global nuclear war. Other types of um, problems could occur between India and Pakistan. They've had numerous serious conflicts. Uh, one time a terrorist group blew up the parliament in India. Fortunately, it wasn't in a session, so not many people were injured, but nevertheless, uh, India moved troops toward the border. And Pakistan's a very small country compared to India. It has a population like Russia's, it's not very big. Um, India's got a huge population and a million person army. Uh, so if you're in Pakistan, you could fear being overrun uh, very quickly by the Indian army. And so that might make you feel you had to launch your nuclear weapons quickly to protect them so that they weren't just useless. Well, Pakistan course, does have a big population uh, compared to, say, a Western European country. But going on to what you're saying there about mistakes as opposed to uh, the, the fear of threats, some saying Stanislav Petrov, one of the people that uh, the Russian duty officer who prevented Armageddon on 26 September uh, 1983, and there are other cases of these officers who don't follow orders, and that's why we're all alive now to tell the tale. But you know that nuclear apologists will tell you that if there are 22 narrow misses uh, that um, humankind uh, have had since the invention of nuclear power. That shows how successful the fail-safes, the uh, operational organizational structures are to uh, continue to proliferate nuclear weapons would presumably be the argument of all the people making uh, billions of dollars of money out of this nuclear weapons uh, uh, creation and uh, formulation. Yeah, we've been lucky so far. That doesn't mean we're going to continue to be lucky in the future. You know, the, the other aspect of this is just a waste of money. I mean, the United States is putting a trillion dollars or something like that into putting a bunch of metal in the ground that will never be used uh, for anything uh, and um, making a bunch of submarines that are, just cruise around endlessly in the oceans and do nothing. Uh, we could take that trillion dollars and invest it in education, edu educating our children or providing health care for everyone. There's a lot of better things to be used with it. Uh, it's very clear that countries that spend their time fighting each other um, just never profit from that. Which, which gets me on to the question that given your pioneering research into nuclear winters, asteroid attacks, the effects of uh, nuclear uh, mm -hmm. weapons even in small theaters, what is the what is the response from the Biden, Blinken, Lloyd Austin, Sullivan, these characters that visit places all around the world talking about the need to protect the United States from the perceived threats of Russia, China, Iran, and I don't know who else. Well, at the moment, there is a U.S. National Academy of Sciences panel 
studying the idea of nuclear winter and um, seeing whether they um, believe that it's um, uh, got good science backing behind it. Um, I would say in the past that uh, the military doesn't want to talk about it and the political establishment doesn't want to talk about it and the NATO doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, for that matter, Russia doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, why don't they want to talk about it? Because it gets rid of the whole idea of deterrence. You know, you, you can't have much deterrence if you attack somebody else and that comes back to then kill your population, which is what happens in a nuclear winter. As you and, and this is why you're them. saying the Obama administration dismissed your uh, research into nuclear winters? Well, every administration since... Uh, Gorbachev and Reagan in the 1980s did not dismiss it. They took it very seriously. And because of that, they started a build-out of nuclear weapons that's been going on ever since then. So right now, um, there, there's only a small fraction of the number of weapons that there was in the 1990s, early 1990s. Um, and so every American president and every Russian president since Reagan and Gorbachev has reduced the nuclear arsenals some of them by accident. I don't think Trump did it on purpose, but he still reduced it. Uh, you know, and other countries have stopped building nuclear weapons. We've had a long period of time where uh, Britain and France and uh, Russia, the United States, either reduced their arsenals or kept them constant, even including China. Um, so we're just now on the start of a new buildup of nuclear yeah, weapons. Yeah, but actually, in fairness to Trump, who's leading in all the opinion polls for, to become president of your country uh, next year, he raced over uh, to meet Kim Jong-un, uh, I assume because, uh, given the diaries and what we hear from the Trump presidency, he was shocked to hear that the uh, United States can't protect uh, itself from a simultaneous four-warhead uh, nuclear attack from North Korea, which, could, which only takes 30 minutes or something to hit L.A., say. I mean, would a Trump presidency perhaps... Uh, some some reasons for optimism that he understands it better than Joe Biden and others because he was just so shocked that this is the state of play as regards how close we are all to uh, death. Well, I think every American president, at least since Clinton, has tried to find some way to deal with North Korea to get them to um, not feel that they're threatened and to agree to get rid of their nuclear weapons. You know, so it's why does nuclear why does North Korea need nuclear weapons? Nobody's threatening North Korea. Uh, well, North States Korea is, no... is threatened, obviously, by sanctions and economic warfare since uh, Britain and the United States killed 20% of their population in the Korean War. Korean War was uh, obviously a terrible thing that happened in the past, and it ha hasn't ended officially, uh, which is very unfortunate. In my view, North Korea is a good example of a failed state which has a single family that's trying to take all the money and starve its population and keep it under control with a military dictatorship. Yeah. And, well, I mean, obviously, that, that is the argument used to say, well, the United States needs to protect itself with other nuclear weapons to force the deterrent. But as for the rich in this world who are benefiting out of uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons with their defense stocks, uh, do you see the popularity amongst the very rich of uh, building bunkers to protect themselves as some of them may even be involved in uh, lobbying for more nuclear weapons because they realize the probability is rising of uh, uh, nuclear first use or second use. 
Well, I don't know a lot of rich people. <laughs> You're in Colorado. <laughs> That's where rich people go to holiday. I know that. <laughs> yeah, sure. But uh, I don't sense any trend in the United States to be concerned about a nuclear war. I don't see people building bunkers or any other thing to protect themselves. Uh, at the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, when peace broke out in the world, and um, the nuclear weapons started to be built down. You know, I think everybody uh, assumed that we were going to start solving our problems through negotiations and talking to each other instead of threatening each other. And, you know, that was a very positive worldwide development. Uh, it'd be better to return to that instead of going around threatening each other with things. Um, you, know, and, you know, I meet lots of people from all over the world. And everybody pretty much wants the same thing. They all want their families to be safe and their children to be prosperous. And, you know, the, most people don't care to be rich and famous or something like that. They just want to have a nice life and have their family be happy. And well, what, that, what's the um, point of being rich and famous if you have to be in a bunker, arguably? Just finally, what about the uh, impact of the arms industry, the defense sector, which is so big, of course, in the United States, on academia and academia research? I don't know uh, how rich uh, Boulder, Colorado, Colorado uh, University of Colorado Boulder is uh, per se, but obviously MIT and all the big, loads of big uh, US academic institutions have huge funding uh, linked to the Pentagon. Is that affecting people's understanding of the dangers of nuclear weapons? I don't detect in the American universities that there's very much military Involvement. It is true that some universities in the past, particularly, have had weapons parts of the university that um, where they were trying to help the military, probably a spinoff from the Second World War in earlier times. At the present time, I don't see a lot of military research in universities. Um, and, uh, you know, the Los Alamos and the Department of Energy laboratories in general have huge numbers of scientists that are have come from universities, of course, and are working at those places on military tasks. Um, and, you know, it's a natural, apparently human behavior to want to have a military to protect the country that you live in. Um, so I, I can see that uh, that's probably not going to ever change. It's a human thing to feel like you want to protect yourself and your family. But I don't see the military, you know, the United States is not that very militaristic, really. You know, I, I realize it looks that way a lot of the time when you're looking at the news and you see American troops going places. But, you know, the general population, I don't think, is all that excited about having wars. They would rather not have any wars. They'd rather not have to go and get in the middle of everybody else's wars. Uh, you know, it's uh, even now you can see in the Congress, there's a lot of concern about the Ukraine war and continuing to support that conflict. Uh, and likewise, we're not very happy about the Hamas and uh, Middle Eastern problem going on with Israel. Uh, most Americans would rather see a two-state solution to that and a peaceful resolution between the Israelis and the Palestinians and other groups in the Middle East to settle their problems in some way that didn't involve fighting each other. Uh, there's nothing to be gained by these wars. I mean, people lose from that. Uh, you know, it's, it, Having a war. Except the people making the money, arguably. Professor Brian Toon, thank you. You're welcome.
And that's it for the final show of this season. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Saturday, the 20th of January. But until then, we'll be broadcasting some of your favourite shows of this series. Meanwhile, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you very soon and Happy New Year. Thank you.